Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. I don't want any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. James Murphy of LCD Sound System looks more like an auto mechanic than a rock star, but he's managed to get rock bands dancing again. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. We talk to musician and producer James Murphy and review the new album from one of the biggest forces in pop music, the Black Eyed Peas. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That is Nora Jones with the song Chasing Pirates, and that is exactly what the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has been doing lately, Jim. In the last few weeks, they have shut down over 80 websites for alleged copyright and trademark violations. They primarily targeted websites that were allegedly selling counterfeit clothing, but there were also several music and entertainment websites shut down, most prominently the OnSmash.com site. What was interesting about this is, A, there was no prior warning to these websites that they were being shut down, that they were even doing anything illegal. In the case of these music websites, there's a fine line between what is considered infringing activity and what is considered artist and label promotion. In fact, a lot of times, labels and artists would be providing content for these websites to promote, even though technically it might have been infringing. The uh, Homeland Security Department didn't ask those kind of questions. It just went right ahead and shut these sites down. The proprietors of these websites, should they be convicted, would face five to ten year prison sentences. So these are some pretty serious consequences. And yet artists like Kanye West just recently endorsed this one site on Smash that was shut down. So it, it really begs a question about whether the U.S. Department of Homeland Security is really doing its research into what exactly these websites are doing or whether it's just blindly taking the word of the music industry and the movie industry and moving in and shutting them down because they think they're committing these infringing activities.
Greg, we're living in a weird world when a website that still gets about 60 million visitors a month is considered a dire failure. <laughs> I'm talking about MySpace. A couple of years ago, MySpace was all the rage. It was the first really popular social networking site. Today, it seems to be on life support. News Corp, Rupert Murdoch's corporation, bought MySpace in 2005 for $580 million. In the last quarter that ended in September, they lost $156 million for those couple of months alone. The thing seems to be in a tailspin. Obviously, Facebook has far eclipsed it. I heard a statistic today that Facebook gets one out of every four visitors going anywhere on the net. Hmm. That's extraordinary. MySpace is mainly becoming a repository for people trading or playing video games with each other or music files, putting up music files by their bands. And it's great for that. I know as a critic, it's easier for me to go over to MySpace to check out a couple of songs by a band than anywhere else. But that's not making any money. And here's the problem. News Corp has said point blank, we've got to fix it here. We don't know what to do. We may sell it. What happens to uh, MySpace if somebody else buys it? What does it become part of? Or we may try to completely reimagine it. But it, it's extraordinary how in, in five short years it's gone from the place to go on the web to a place that's struggling to survive. That is Robert Ritchie of Detroit, Michigan, Jim, otherwise known as Kid Rock. And he's really ticked off. He just posted an open letter on his website there where he blasted ticket scalpers and the secondary ticket market. He is the latest major artist to come out and speak out against what's going on in that secondary ticket market. He was really ticked off because his big 40th birthday party in January at Ford Field sold out in like 19 minutes. The tickets were going for forty nine fifty a pop. There was a VIP package as well for 300 but a lot of tickets ended up in the secondary ticket market. We're going for up to $900 for oh. this show. This caused him to go over the top on his website. He directly referenced the secondary ticket market and those ticket scalpers in the following statement. If I could confront each and every one of them face-to-face, -face, I would, and it would not work out too well for them. I guarantee all of you. I hate them. I feel like someone is beating up a close friend or family member while I'm chained to a chair. Strong words from wow. Mr. Ritchie, but at the same time, he doesn't really offer any kind of solution. He's basically throwing his hands up, saying, neither I nor my management really know how to deal with this problem. I got a few words of advice for, for Kid Rock. Bands like Nine Inch Nails, The Smashing Pumpkins, Radiohead, numerous bands have addressed this issue. It's a hassle, but there are ways to get around it, or at least mitigate it. They have set up these wristband systems, they, these ID checks at the door. It creates a more of a hassle for, for their fans, in a way, to get into the stadium. But if you want to cut down on the number of ticket scalpers that are selling your tickets, there are ways to do it instead of just saying, I don't know what to do. Well, and it starts by going away from the Ticketmaster-type systems out there and doing it yourself.
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is LCD Sound System with the song All I Want from the band's newest release, The London Sessions. The LCD Sound System frontman is producer James Murphy, who joins us this week. He started out in music as a punk rocker and later became a DJ, producer, and label head. And that label, DFA, or Death From Above, was co-founded by him and Tim Goldsworthy in the late 90s. And you may remember it for some of the artists they had on their roster, the Juan McLean, the Rapture, Hot Chip, a bunch of other progressive dance acts. But the real deal started for Murphy in 2002 when he founded LCD Sound System. Released a bunch of really noteworthy singles in 12 inches, then came out with three critically acclaimed albums, starting with a self-titled debut in 2005, Sound of Silver in 2007, and this year, This Is Happening, which became a top 10 Billboard hit. James Murphy joined us in the studio recently to talk about his career in music, but I couldn't resist asking him about his potential career in television as a staff writer for Seinfeld. It was a weird, totally coincidental thing. I was in college for writing. And I had a really good friend who had moved to Los Angeles who was uh, getting married. He was also a writer, and he was like my kind of my writing mentor. I, I, I was going to just go hang out with him like for the week, you know, do you know pre-wedding bro stuff, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I, we went out to lunch one day with his. Uh, he called her his aunt, but he's like, she's like, well, she's not my aunt, but I, mean, well, I was an actor as a kid. My sister's an actor, and, and there was our agent, and we were having lunch, and she's like, I really got this problem. There's you know this show. And the guys are from New York, and it's just the writer, the producer, and the star are the only writers, and they're out in LA, and they're really worried about you know not having a New York feeling anymore. We need writer in New York, and my friend Paul's like, "Well, James is a writer, and he Mm -hmm. lives in New York." He's like, "Well, do you have any writing samples?" And of course, I did because we were there. I was there with my writing, my writer friend, and we were going to edit each other's stuff. So I gave her a bunch of stories that were on the funnier side. Now I mixed this show up with the Gary Shandling show. And I even said to her, I was like, oh, I love the theme song. It's, I think it's really funny. And she kind of looked at me funny because the, th- the theme song for the Gary Shandling show was like, this is the Gary Shandling show. This is the show that Gary Shandling. You know, it's like, yeah, we had the, to write yeah. a song. Yeah, yeah. This is the theme to Gary show. The theme to Gary show. Gary called me up and asked if I would write his theme song. I'm almost halfway finished. How do you like it so far? How do you like the theme to Gary show? It's, you know, which I thought was really funny. And, uh, the, of course, the theme from Seinfeld has no words, and it's <laughs> just that idiotic slap bass right. synthesizer yeah. sound. <laughs> so she was very confused. But I mixed it up, and I went home, and I was going to write a... She sent me some scripts, and I got to, you know, go write a script, and we'll see how it goes. And if you get it picked up, you get a amount of money, and, you know, we need a staff writer. It'd be a good position. And I'm like, well, I'm in Collins, and, you know, I'm playing guitar. I'm busy. And, um... <laughs> So I just didn't do it. I did what, it, you know, you go home and I procrastinated and I did all that sort of stuff. And then they were sent me another pile of scripts and were like, you know, how's it going? You know, still waiting. You know, if everybody likes the stories, maybe just a test script, even a couple scenes would be really great. And I just didn't do it. And then, um, you know, put it all in a box and moved into my parents' house. And all those years, I just thought it was the Gary Shandling show, which had been canceled after a very short run. Yeah. So I was like, whatever. And then when uh, my, my folks passed away in 2001 and I had, to, you know, part of my job as a kid, you go through and you find the stuff that's yours in the basement and you know, get rid of your trophies and stuff like that. And there was, there's that letter. And I was like, oh, neat. Hey, that's that letter. That lady is Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't the Gary Shanley show. It was the most successful show in television history. 
<laughs> that I didn't didn't do anything for. But if you'd gotten on that train, James, you would not be the international pop superstar you are today. Well, I mean, the salve on the wound is that I think I would have been a real jerk because I was really young. I was 22, mm. and I was in narcissistic egomaniac and I know it sounds weird get into music if the world had given been like you're awesome here here's a whole bunch of money and stuff at 22 like I just would be an insufferable it just would have been just think telling the world telling you that you're good before you figure out that the world really doesn't care and whatever happens is just funny then it really limits your enjoyment and I feel like failing consistently through my 20s set me up to be a much happier Hmm. person later in life like i look now at us as a band and i'm like so much about what our band is is about not being at a vulnerable age in a lot of ways it's about being 40 it's yeah. about being much older mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. than you're supposed to be in a rock band James, when you started DFA, you began to get some notice uh, outside of just the dance underground. And it must have been a little surprising when you pick up the phone one day and it's Janet Jackson. It's Miss Jackson if you're nasty, yes. Miss Jackson. <laughs> and another time, you spend a week or two weeks laying on the floor of your studio trying to write lyrics with Britney Spears. Well, that's a couple hours only. But this had to have, for a down-to-earth punk rock DIY guy, you know, that had to have been a surreal period. Well, the Janet Jackson thing happened, I'd already put out Losing My Edge. That's what that's okay. what she was calling about. Okay. She wanted something, something like with that beat was what she was saying. And yeah. she was her on the phone, which I thought was pretty funny. something with that beat and I like it it's kind of dirty and you know I'm on the phone and I'm like oh okay and then there's silence and then she's really very polite and very friendly but then we just never I don't know we just never called her back but you, you had to be tripping thinking <laughs> wow. about Janet Jackson listening to those lyrics I was there in Cologne when Can played its first show I wasn't so much. I just thought, it, for me, it was funny. If I was writing a, a story, it would be a funny thing to happen to the characters. Mm. Like, you know, like, I never listened to pop music very much. Like, mm. I, I just, it's sort of just like having a football player, professional football player call you. It was, mm. like, totally irrelevant to my life. And <laughs> yeah. the Britney Spears thing, I wasn't very interested. Tim was more interested because I was on tour and mm. he was home. So, I was, so he was like, well, I'll make some music and we'll go and try and write something. And we spent a day trying to write a song and she was very professional. What does that mean exactly? She was very 
I don't know. I think those people that were like child TV stars and stuff like that, they don't get embarrassed very easily. I think mm. they do deeply, but I think in a way like they'll just get up on a microphone and just sing yeah. uh, in a way that I would just be like, can everybody just leave? I need to go think. Like yeah. I can't do these things in front of people, but they've just been tap dancing in front of adults for since they were you know, short pants. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's a di- the very different kind of <laughs> mentality. Like they can just go do it. Yeah. Uh, um, it, she was very nice, and, and we spent a day working, and it just w- didn't really go anywhere. She went to dinner, and never came back, and we never talked again. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That that transition though has always fascinated me because you were in that indie rock world. You were you know guitar based drums. It, there was a mm. certain set of rules around indie rock, mm. and all of a sudden, suddenly you're in this electronic music sphere, which is a lot more wide open in terms of the stuff that it would take on. And it was uncool for an indie rocker to be messing around with synthesizers or keyboards or... Well, I mean, yeah, know. yes and no. I mean, it, in my bands, you know, we used synthesizers and mm-hmm. I was... And we had never been very accepted in indie rock in a lot of ways. So I, I was pretty bitter and I wasn't all that concerned about that stuff anymore. I, in fact, I'd quit playing music because I found the whole thing so distasteful and mm. so confining... Not that I wanted to make pop music. It just was. It just felt like high school. You know, it felt like <laughs> you, know, you can't sit at that table or something. But with this, it's like when we started DFA, Tim and I talked a lot about um, how, in a weird way, especially in like the era of Bjork, like pop music was a lot more flexible. That you could just, you know, the ability to make whatever you wanted and and not worry about like the rules was super engaging and interesting. We especially when we started thinking about dance music, it was just a much more interesting way of. I dance music really woke me back up because suddenly. Coming from an indie rock background, it's like, what was the point? What was the point of any of it? And you realize mm. the point of all of it was just to feel cool. I mean, that's what almost everybody in a band wanted to do. They wanted to be cool. They wanted to feel cool. They wanted other people to think certain things about them. And if you took that away, what was the point? The music mm. was boring. Like, most of it was crappy. Uh, it sounded bad. No songs were, <laughs> weren't there. Nobody could sing. It's like, what was the point of any of it? You mm. know, Dance music had a point. You could tell when it worked. It was like, did people dance? Well, then it worked. It's mm. like you had like certainly there was like a set. There was like a. I started equating it to like you know it, being an indie rock, like making fake cakes you know, out of styrofoam <laughs> and dance music. You were cooking. You made food. Like people ate it, and if they liked it, then it was good food. But no matter mm. what, it was like it was there for a reason. You were going to play it, and they were going to dance or not. Mm-hmm. It really struck a chord with me. That kind of just like simple set of goals that. Um, Within which you can make it specially delicious. You know, like, you can, you know, like once the, the main, there was a point, and the point wasn't art. The point was something else. And then you could, you were free to kind of like do as much weird stuff as you wanted, as long as you did the basic job of making it danceable. What do you say when the day comes? When it's no fun, when it's all done, when it's no fun. What do you say when the time comes? There's a dry room when it's undone. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, more with our guest, James Murphy of LCD Sound System. And later on in the show, Jim and I are going to review the new album from this year's Super Bowl Entertainment, The Black Eyed Peas. Just keep it up, keep it up when it's too 
Sound Opinions, that is the song Give It Up by LCD Sound System, and its frontman, James Murphy, is our guest this week. Give It Up appeared on the first compilation released by Murphy's label, DFA, in 2002, and it was a surprising release from a man who started out as a good old-fashioned indie rocker. During our conversation, I asked Murphy about his move into dance music. I'd started DJing, and that was really fun. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, I was kind of cool, and I, I really liked it. I was a very diligent indie rocker and punk rock kid, and I was I had all these really it was mad all the time and really controlling, and I had all that side of me that was like still getting really fired up. Plus, I was wasted all the time and DJing all the time, and suddenly I was able to do cool stuff. And then I was like. Well, this is what I hate about this. this is what I hate about New York. This is what I hate about dance music. This is what I hate about indie rock. So, I, so instead of complaining, Tim and I had this big conversation where we were like, we'd met all these people who were just awful and who were getting away with murder and <laughs> making terrible music. And, and we were like, if all these people can do this, and what, what do we do? We're just two guys who love music and who complain. That's all we do. We sit and <laughs> we just... You're like, the guy doesn't know he's talking. He's just, just, that's just a rip off of that, you know, song by the other band that he thinks nobody knows it, but we know. And, you know, it's, it's just empty drivel. And I was like, well, why don't we just do what we complain via a vehicle of doing things? Now, that could, that means everything. And that was what DFA was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It was a group of people that we believed in. It was not, there was no like velvet ropiness. It was like our friends and, that was what mattered. The people that we knew it was like a personal connection. So our parties were based on if you knew somebody who knew somebody, you could come and that was it. And it was, you know, cheap or free. And, and we would play the music that we liked, not like a bunch of junk. And it would be, you know, like we would be fighting against just like DJs that would say things like, well, I like this record because I can play it between this record and that record. I'm like, and you're going to waste seven <laughs> minutes of my life with something that you don't care about, but it's like a good glue. It's like mayonnaise between two things that you that also suck. And what we had this advantage of, of, of at the time, which was unusual, we had the advantage of you're going to DJ things that have come out in the last 18 months. I have the history of rock and roll at my disposal. Like, yeah. so you're going down. Like, we just were really <laughs> super confident. And I was like, really wasted a lot of times. And I would be at 
I would be at like techno clubs and I'd be running around like screaming, being like, oh my God, if somebody played loose by the studios right now, this whole place would freak out. Like he just played loose full volume right now. Like people would just pull their head up. I was right and I was wrong because I would DJ at like techno clubs and I would go on and put like loose by the Stooges on and people would freak out but in the kind of like I'm going to crawl in that DJ booth and I'm going to beat you to death yeah. you yeah. don't take yeah. this off right now this is this, is, that, this shirt does not go with the Stooges I'm going to go in there and beat you to death but I just was like no this is great like I was so optimistic and we were really happy and, and psyched about it so I and I had so I was the guy who did that. I was the guy who <laughs> would be kind of out of his mind playing, you know, the United States of America or yeah, you know, throwing like, Noi into a set. Right. And like but it was whatever was fun. And then I went to see this band at at what was Brownies in New York and I'm standing there and this band first band finishes and the second the second band's setting up and all of a sudden I look over and someone's playing ESG and I'm like whoa 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 what what the hell like, mm. what's going on no 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 that's that's my job that's <laughs> that's what I do <laughs> who the hell are you and I got really like bummed out and then I got really embarrassed by how bummed out I was I was like what like they're my songs I made them like I didn't make mm. them and uh, so there was all this stuff burbling around in my brain and I had made this song, Beat Connection. Basically, the idea which I was one of drum disco drums that were locked to a groove that went on for a really, really long time to DJ. That's all. It's a two DJ tool. And I had it, and at the end, I put a little song really quickly at the end, just at, you know, last minute. And I was like, well, I need to put this out, so I need another song. Um, and then Ad Rock from the Beastie Boys gave me a boombox that had a keyboard built into it, a cassette deck boombox with a keyboard built in it, and it had a beat in it, and that's the beat from Losing My Edge. So I had this beat that I liked, and I would sing this song about Losing My Edge. In it, and I was just going to do just sing to that the keyboard thing. That was going to be the whole song. But almost every time I made a song, it was out of embarrassment about owning a studio and not making music. To a certain degree, I was like, I should go downstairs and do something. I do have a studio. So I hooked it up and I set up a drum set. And um, I just played the drums and sang the song at the same time. I just made it made it up. Like didn't write any lyrics down. But because it was so fertile of like a – I was so – I kept going back and forth about how I felt about it, that the song kind of wrote itself. Like it would be like hmm. one minute I'd be like, Oh, I hate those people. And then the other minute I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. I'm full of it. You know, like, and the only thing I wrote was the list of bands at the end, which I realized later was like an ambulance amulet, like waving a, you know, like a magic amulet to <laughs> yeah. protect me. Like, no, you don't understand. I went to Tim and I was like, I need a list of bands. They're good, but more importantly, that are cool. And he's like, well, what do you mean? It's like, this is embarrassing. I'm like, yes, it is embarrassing. What I want is if you're like the ultimate like internet music snob and you want to show that you know a lot about a lot of things, <laughs> I want a list of bands. And you have to have a couple of pop ones to show that you're not just underground. We made, you know, made this list and you know, I was like, what about this? What about this one? What about this one? And this one. So the list is just be yell at the end, you just run out of arguments. So you start yelling things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I made the song and I came upstairs and played it for John and Tim. Like, look, I made this. And they looked at me in horror. They were like, this <laughs> is terrible. And nobody liked it until Phil Mossman, the original guitar player from mm-hmm. LCD came. And he was just laughing. And yeah. like, like, he's like, it's, it's a, this is brilliant. Like, this is exactly, because Phil was older than me. And he was like, this is exactly, I, yes, this is, yes, you know, exactly how I feel. Well, and, if you sat down <clears> to come up with a plan to press every rock critic in the universe's buttons, you, you couldn't have been more spot on mm. with what you were doing. Yeah, and as we all know, that's the way, that's the way you make millions, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't say that. It's a re- recipe for success. So, well, Losing My Edge comes out, followed a while later by Daft Punk is playing in my house. So you just got to ask, you know, when did you, did, have you heard from Daft Punk? Have you heard from any of those musical legends name-checked in, uh, in Losing My Edge? Well, I mean, those have got to be satisfying. I've met the Daft Punk guys. I mean, I mean, I really like Daft Punk, but my feelings about them are, are a lot more peerish than, say, like, you know, Gil Scott Heron. Yeah, 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 there's a, <laughs> a different relationship with suicide, but... Uh, the Daft Punk thing was just, for me, it, they were just such a good example of something just fun. Got a bus and a trailer at my house, my house. I'll show you the ropes, kids, show you the ropes. Definitely was playing my house. It was just like I got really sad, like, and I missed all these raves. I was talking to my friends. I was like, I never did any of that stuff. But I was like, but I used to play punk house shows, which were awesome. And like, you know, Daft Punk never did any of that. And then I thought about this guy. It would be a guy like that used to throw punk shows in like Ohio. How awesome it would be if he had just saved up all his money. <laughs> and they called Daft Punk up, called their management, and they were like, Well, it's going to be this much money. He's like, all right. So he saved up for years, and then just booked them without ever really getting into the specs of it and then yeah. they, they show up and it's a house party i thought that would have been really funny <laughs> <clears throat> like that is there like well where do we play well, it's like just down here by the washing machine it's gonna be great yeah <laughs> because that's what we used to do we play by the washing yeah, machine the beer's and, in the sink but i also like the idea that like and i desperately when we were talking about shooting a video for it I, I contacted them and i really just wanted to do it i wanted to make a documentary i wanted to have a i wanted to go to one of the punk houses i used to play at and have a show and invite kids and put a PA together and just film it and have them do it and they couldn't or maybe they just were like I don't I don't I don't know how this uh, LCD is going to be so maybe <laughs> see how this pans out before we commit but they were very polite about it you're listening to sound opinions first record was was amazing i remember in particular that song tribulations you know we wore that out for about a year and that is just like this proto disco song you know from from a guy from an indie rock background you know the understanding of dance music it's not something you commonly associate with a guy coming out of you know a guitar-based indie rock band how did that filter in? Was it just like going to a lot of clubs and seeing what worked and what didn't or not at all i think it's i think i kind of found my level uh, i think i found what makes sense to me i was always into physical music like body music and i was always wrong about songs that were going to be popular because i didn't like i don't like pop i don't care very much though that the tribulation is a total pop song but um in fact it was written as a 
to show my friend how easy it is to make songs as a joke. I guess I just always, I was always like into like the physical side of music and how it felt. And the bands I really liked always had like a physicality to it. And the songs I really liked had a physicality to them that I would describe in physical terms, like mm-hmm. the guitar at the end of Rock Lobster, which by the way, the the guitar the second half of Rock Lobster will take on anything in, on entertainment That's by getting a four. It's yeah. ripping, yeah. ripping guitar. This, the physicality of it, like the, the fact that the part could be played lighter or differently and mm. it wouldn't have any of the impact. And that always just was like a big thing to me. And that's why I switched from guitar to drums because I could hit them harder and I mm. could make different sound. And when I started making dance music, it just seemed like that was all body music and it was all physical music. And uh, I wasn't burdened really by like the tropes of how dance music is supposed to work. And so the process of making that kind of music was very comfortable to me like it just it fit it was like one of those things where you're like oh you know, mm-hmm. this is what i'm supposed to do um and tribulations was literally just doing everything at once like i had a i had a synthesizer that was playing a pattern i had uh, drums a drum machine and i had a guitar and I had a microphone and i didn't have a part and i didn't have a guitar part mm-hmm. i didn't have any vocals and that was the, how the song came out mm-hmm. like, just like in an afternoon it's amazing how powerful that stuff can be like how every track in the world the drum goes away yeah and then you wait and then, lo and behold, it comes back. Yeah. <laughs> of course it comes back. It's like, no, stop being surprised. <laughs> but it's really approaching dance music with a, uh, with a punk rock attitude. You find yourself on Capitol. I, I never thought that we'd see a second LCD sound system record. And yet, you know, two years later, Sound of Silver comes. And, you know, songwriting is even more sophisticated in some ways, but lovably stupid in others. I mean that in the very best sense of the word. Thinking of a song like North American Scum. I don't know oh, where to begin. We are North Americans. And for those of you who still think we're from England, we're not. No. We bid our planes and our trains till we think we might die. Far from North America, where the buildings are old and you might have lots of mimes. That was a really telling song to me because in a lot of ways it was it was not making fun of North Americans very much. It was partially making fun of the relationship between the U.S. and Canada, which I love. It's one of my all-time favorite relationships. <laughs> the weirdest. It's so weird <clears throat> because like I, I love how little Americans know about Canadians and like how funny Canadians can be about Americans. And it's just like how like all the comedians are Canadian because they're just standing on the edge of the tape table being like, really, really, yeah, yeah. really. <laughs> But also, like, I really like how Canadians can be, like, really, oh, no, those are, I'm Canadian. That's, um, we're not American. Like, can be very, but then if they like an American thing, we're like, well, I'm no, we're North American. We're all, yeah. it's all one thing, really. It's kind of just, we're just, you know, Canadian American doesn't really matter. Like, if it's something they yeah. like or banned or something, yeah. they kind of, like, can choose when to be your brother. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I also just was like, I didn't realize how little Europeans realized that Americans were insecure. I just, granted, the, the world thinks they know this place largely because we export so much media. And they'll be like, you don't know anything about my country, mm. but I know everything about your country. And I'm like, you don't know. You actually don't. 
It's like, of course, usually the people that are like, you guys are a bunch of idiots. And like, I, what's your favorite? Thing? I like Basquiat. It's like, okay, take it easy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it was just a song about like, you know, perception, you know, and having a, and it being a very weird time to be an American traveling. Well, you do that, you do that uh, both sides of the coin thing really well. New York, I love you. But you're bringing me down, you know? Mm. I mean, there's that love-hate relationship. Well, it's a love song. To a place that you occasionally hate. Well, of course. Well, you don't, you don't love anything if you don't hate it a little. New York, you're safer, and you're wasting my time. Our records all show you are filthy but fine. But they shuttered your store. When you open the doors To the cops who were bored Once they'd run out of crime I don't like people who complain about New York constantly. Like, I don't like my New York friends who are like, oh, it used to be so much better. And you're like, shut up. You, you know, it's like, I used to come here in the 80s. You get knifed. It's not, it wasn't mm. better. There were things that were awesome about it, granted. It was cool that rent was way cheaper. Part of the reason rent was cheaper is because you would be stabbed. But the thing that I loved about this record, too, is that beyond the sort of the satire and the element of, of humor that was that was part of it, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. There was a vulnerability that you were letting the world see in this record that wasn't there earlier on. I mean, I'm thinking about All My Friends, Someone Great. Those kind of songs have a power to them that I think resonates with people. Like when you play All My Friends, that's the moment in the show. As far as I'm concerned, that is born to run. You know, that is like, you know, that's one wow. of those songs that like people don't get tired of hearing that song. For me, Losing My Edge is a really in a lot of ways a really really sad song. And I always feel like, this is going to sound really pretentious, so well, whatever, I'm old. I feel like I'm working on one thing all the time, working on the same thing, whether it's throwing a party or DJing or running the label or working on designs or working on songs for the band or figuring out how we play live, figuring out what the posters are like. I'm working on one gesture. And if you were making a biography of an, of an inanimate object and these were all chapters, that's sort of like how I feel about it you know they're you know there are sadder chapters that seem but they're all it's all part of, you all know what's going to happen you know, the person's going to be born they're going to live they're going to die that's what happens and mm-hmm. um I'm, that's why i think of records as like communication devices like when the records and i just don't know how they are what they are for a long long time because i just need to see how people react to them like i didn't know how people were going to react to all my friends i was a little embarrassed of it because it was i felt it was so melodic done you know and then when we started playing i was like okay this is working and people really respond to it it was it was to a large degree about like having gone away on tour and missing you know Mm -hmm. i have this amazing 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 group of friends in new york um which is 
to me, which is what DFA is and always has been, is that group of friends and everything else is, comes from it. But, but um, a bunch of them became part of LCD Sound System. You just turn to your friends to flesh out the band. Yeah, you know? I mean, that's always what it was. Yeah. You know, it's like you know, the idea of just like, you know, finding a way to just be around the people that you care about and, and that, that, that making you in a way... Forcing you not to, you know, forcing you just to act like a better person. So, so, so that's an important aspect of it. They can turn to you and say, "James, you're going over the head. You're being a jerk." No, they just they don't. There'd be there's no there's no moment when they start doing. That's just sort of the. That's just consistent all times. Pat 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 emits a sound. Pat the drummer emits a sound like an air conditioner of idiot jerk, idiot jerk, sucking all the air out of there, Murphy. <laughs> All right, This Is Happening comes out, album number three, and the chatter starts almost immediately, where somewhere along the course of making this record, you decide this might be the last one. Yeah. Well, I thought um, that was, I thought, I thought Sound of Silver was going to be the last one. I mean, that's why it says, you know, all my friends, it's like, you know, this could be the last time. Like, mm. it was like, we're done. I don't want to be a sales, sales, salesman, which is what I kind of felt like touring to a certain degree. Like, you're just, just you know, trying to sell a record. At, towards the end of the recording process, I was like, this sh- the three makes sense, and if I have to think about making this record, releasing it, touring, coming back and doing it again, I don't know if I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if I would go out and get in a bus with the concept that it's going to happen again. Not to mention that I'm ambitious and I'm aggressive and I'm competitive and I want to do the best I can. But I also I don't want to be a famous person. It's not a life that I want. The idea would be like if I was going to go out and then we were going to make another record, like I'd be pulling back, which mm-hmm. is against everything, goes against everything that I've come to be and believe. Would you come in like what? I'm going to try and be smaller? Like I don't – it's it's all really weird. But mm-hmm. it makes sense when you're angry. When we started and I was just like, you know, we were broke and I was living on an inflatable mattress. And I'm like, we're going to be really big, man. Let's just go <laughs> with this stupid idea <laughs> as hard as we can. And then when the stupid idea starts working, you're like ah. – and maybe we should go home, you know. So I didn't want to do that. So I said the only dignified thing to do was be like, do this the best I can, go out and tour the hardest I can, and mm-hmm. do like, go. Let's just do it. Let's just try and think of all the, all the David Bowie shows we wish we were a part <laughs> of, and like all the you know Roxy Music shows, and just try and just do it the best we can, and then go home. Mm. And with the energy of knowing that it's over, we can do it. We can have fun and like really enjoy each other and enjoy our time. Also, we did the thing where I made the record myself alone the first singles i made them in my basement essentially was where i lived then the record i went to a farm then the second record we got a little more introspective mm-hmm. and the third record i rented a mansion in los angeles and everybody was a jacket so i wanted the full arc of a humiliating rock and roll career yeah well now what i've come to kind of believe is going to happen is this was the last of of lcd sound system being a professional rock band mm. Making albums and going on tour and, and doing all that kind of stuff, singles and videos and things like that. It's the end of that. Because the the freedom that I had in my the life that created the band was huge. I was like, I'm gonna why don't I try this? It was like an idiotic idea, I'm gonna go do it, and then I had a then I suddenly had a career. That's missing from my life just because of time. Like to do this job in a dignified manner takes up almost all my time. So I just wanted to I want to stop that. Mm-hmm. Don't want to become another band. I'll probably make more music, but just maybe make 12 inches and maybe make an EP or maybe make another album at some point, but not with any intention of going to play it live and yeah. not with any intention of trying to be a part of the world in that way because I still want to make 
records that I'm proud of and I still want to make music, but I, I want to have a life and I want to, you know, I want to, I promised myself I'd kind of be done when I was 40 and lo and behold, I'm 40. But you always look like you're having a blast. I do have fun, but I also have a great time DJing and I also have a great time gardening, but nobody sees it. Like, (laughs) it's like, I have a great time reading. Look, this is America. If you kind of keep doing the same thing as a band over and over, you will be, people will come see you. Mm-hmm. Like that's it's in England. If you keep doing the same thing, people will throw sticks at you, and you have to change constantly, <laughs> and Fair. you have to make suddenly like a, a harp record or something to be like current. But here, it's like if you just keep slogging away. Like if the Replacements were playing tomorrow and they sounded like they did on Let It Be, mm. they'd be huge. They'd be huge. It's just like you just if you just keep going, mm-hmm. it works. So it's like it's not a mystery. I get it. Like I make another record that doesn't. If it doesn't suck, we're fine. But that's just not that engaging at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And what's farther down the road for that is not that engaging. Like yeah. what, be more famous or be sadder or <laughs> go country? I don't know. It's like not – none of that stuff is awesome to me. Mm-hmm. But making records is still awesome. So we'll just find – I'll find a way to do it that doesn't involve me getting on a pre-designed treadmill. Well, James Murphy, LCD Sound System, it has been uh, an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Good times. Good, good times. <laughs> to comment on our conversation with James Murphy or anything in the rock world, call 888-859-1800 and we'll put it on the air. Next up, Jim and I review the new album by hip-hop hitmakers, The Black Eyed Peas. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions, and that is the uh, ubiquitous Black Eyed Peas with the ubiquitous song, The Time, Dirty Bit, from their sixth studio album, The Beginning. Wow, where to begin with this group? Two stories, really, here. The Black Eyed Peas started out as a underground 
hip-hop trio out of the West Coast in the 90s, uh, headed up by Will I Am. Kind of a West Coast equivalent of a tribe called Quest. I think they were sort of pursuing that same kind of cool, jazzy vibe. That wasn't selling a whole lot of records, though. Band completely retooled in the early part of the 21st century with the addition of the singer Fergie, Stacy Ann Ferguson. She added a whole new dimension to the band. She's obviously had a very successful solo career as well. But Black Eyed Peas really took off with uh, what can only be described as some huge novelty singles. And I might add, some of Jim DeRogatis' favorite music of the last decade when it comes to pop, Jim. Hope I'm not misrepresenting you there. No, that would be correct. But uh, My Humps, Let's Get It Started, I Got a Feeling, Boom Boom Pow, huge hits. The last album, The End, came out last year, sold 11 million copies. This quartet is now one of the biggest pop groups in the world, so big, in fact, that they have broken the string of baby boomer halftime entertainers at the Super Bowl. Yes, they will be the headliners at next year's Super Bowl. So here we go. One of the biggest groups in the world right now, the Black Eyed Peas, out with their sixth album, The Beginning. Let's play a track from it before we review it. It's called XOXOXO from the Black Eyed Peas on Sound Opinions. Hey girl, you know you special. Wanna jump through the phone, give you best though. I wanna hold you tight, never let go. Cause your love's like magic, presto. Girl, let's tangle up like a pretzel. Karma Sutra, love him, baby, let's go. Girl, I put you in a trance like Tiesto. But I ain't talking about tech, tech, no. Girl, you stole my heart like a klepto. Butterflies in my tummy need Pepto. Bismo, baby, give me more sex, though. It's your pleasure like I'm Gecko. Girl, will I stop loving you? Heck no. Honestly, I think you got me in a hex, yo. When I'm with you, it's all perfecto. And when I'm leaving, you hit me with that text and you talking about the XO, XO, XO. That XO, XO, XO. Hit me with the XO. XO, XO, that XO, XO, XO. Baby, everywhere I go, I'm not alone. You let me know, you're on my phone, you're in my dreams, you're on my screen. You send me X and O's, X and O's. the phone for your text show i want to stay connected like lego you the gas to my car you my petrol me and you go back retro every time i get some i want to get more every time you away i want to get close because the loving that you give me just echoes got me dumb got me stunk because the sex so so good i want to show it like an expo i can't let go let go my ego you my number one you my bevel you're the only one for me because i said so girl you want my heart you didn't met though because now i ain't looking for the next yo when i'm rich you it's all perfect and when I go, I'll be waiting for your text. I'll be missing your XO, XO, XO. That XO, XO, I ain't talking XO, about techno. Girl, so One of the XO, lines XO, in that song, XO, 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 by the Black Eyed Peas from the beginning. XOXO, of course, being the way you sign all your emails to me, Mr. <laughs> Kai. I, I do appreciate that friendliness. All right. Yes, I have said on the record that I truly enjoy the Black Eyed Peas. They are a cartoon band, Greg. They are the monkeys of the new millennium. They are supremely silly. There is zero originality, but there are myriad hooks, and you just had to enjoy that string of hits, which you name-checked earlier. Will I Am? 
the guy has delivered, especially on those last couple of records, Elefunk and the END, great stuff in terms of mindless pop pleasure. And there's none of it on the beginning. It is paining me to say this. <laughs> I am ripping out my heart. They have gone in this direction, the beginning being a new beginning, a fresh start. The last was the end. This is the beginning. We're going somewhere new. Where they're going is in towards uh, more techno stuff. But how that jibes with that sample we heard in the time, Dirty Bit, biting a song from Dirty Dancing, biting KC in the Sunshine Band? This is the best you can do, Will? I mean, at least in the past, there was a little bit more imagination, a little bit more stretching, a lot more Fergie. Fergie, I think, is holding it all up for the next Duchess solo album, and she's not giving her all here. She's not being a team player. This has none of the stuff I love about the Black Eyed Peas. I'm not even going to say burn it. I gotta say, this is a trash it record. If we, we did the turkey shoot oh. recently, this would have been an album I expected good things from, and it truly broke my heart. Well, I'm glad you finally saw the light about this group because I've never really gotten the appeal. Where I think it does work is in those big outdoor settings through the big speaker systems and you got a, ma- a madly dancing crowd. You sort of turn off your brain and have a good time. Okay, so therefore, maybe they are the perfect halftime entertainment for the Super Bowl. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of the actual musical content, this is the kind of stuff that gives sampling a bad name. I remember the criticism that MC Hammer and Puff Daddy endured in the 90s for ripping off whole swaths of really popular songs and then just turning them just a little bit into hip-hop tunes. And people said, well, that sampling medium is really dumb, you know? Well, Will I Am is doing the same thing. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing for the great hip-hop innovators who have used sampling as a really creative tool, from public enemy to girl talk, to have to endure a hack like Will I Am, because that is exactly what this guy is. What's even more debilitating for Black Eyed Peas fans is a lack of hooks. One thing Will I Am used to be able to deliver is hooks, hooks, hooks. This album has very few, with the exception of that lead track that we play, the, the blatant thievery of the I've had the time of my life hook. There are none on this record. And lastly, great point about Stacy Ferguson, Fergie. She's disappeared. As you said, is the solo record the next thing? Because she barely is on this record, and they need her more than ever now. This is absolutely a trash at record. Much as it pains me, that would be a double trash it for the latest from the Black Eyed Peas. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Jim, we're going to play a lot of good music next week, I guarantee you. We have our top albums of 2010. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. James Murphy of LCD Sound System was recorded by Mary Gaffney. And if we describe our team in terms of which of the Black Eyed Peas they would be, our intern Julia Mullen-Gordon would be Apple D. App. Producer Robin Lynn, she would be Fergie the Duchess. Jason Saldana, our other producer, he is Will I Am. And Tori Southside Malatia, our executive producer and fearless leader, he's Taboo. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Where you at, boy? Where you at, boy? At the tone, please record your message. New messages. Hey, hello, Sound Opinions. This is Kevin and Anthony calling from Manhattan. Just got some comments about the Teenage Fan Club interview. Love that everyone's really into Teenage Fan Club now that 
freaking shadows is out and stuff. Great news. Awesome. Where was everybody when Man Made came out, man? Man Made came out five years ago. It was killer. Amazing. Bye. Hi, my name's Hannah, and I'm from, calling from the Twin Cities, Minnesota. Um, I just heard your list of the top rock cities, and I have to say, I'm from Madison, and I've lived in the Twin Cities for six years. I have to say the Twin Cities has got to rank higher than Madison, because for a true rock city, the Twin Cities has substantially better bands coming through. Madison's got a lot of great music, but... Some of it can be kind of bad, but there's a lot of it. The Twin Cities, on the other hand, is more selective. In order to be a local band here, you just have to be the top of your game. So I would say the Twin Cities should be bumped up on that list to number two, if not number one. Thanks. This is Dave from Chicago. I'm still in the car listening to the program where you just uh, criticized Christina Aguilera, and even though... She may not be known as the most talented person in the world. As you said, she does have a tremendous vocal ability, and it was completely and utterly wasted in her latest album. unbelievable waste of talent. It seems to me that with the hey, 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 that she seems to be recycling and her new songs that sound just like uh, redos of the topic of Vogue, seems like she's trying to pattern herself after Madonna. So, thanks for the show. I couldn't agree with you more. Have a great day. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Brendan O'Grady. I'm calling from Austin, Texas. And I just got done listening to your review of the new Bruce Springsteen compilation, The Darkness on the Edge of Town Outtakes, The Promise. And putting aside the fact that I kind of like Bruce Springsteen and I like the Ramones, i got to say I think Jim was kind of way off on this. You know, Jim said that the Ramones would, would hate that record, but right around the same time, didn't Joey Ramone come to Bruce Springsteen asking for a song for the Ramones to play? That song was Hungry Heart, and it's uh, put onto The River, which was Springsteen's album right after Dark Sun and Japan. You gotta remember that right around the same time, the Ramones were going into the studio to work with Phil Spector on the underrated, I think, classic end of the century. So I think that's exactly the kind of music that the Ramones were loving and, and would love in Bruce Springsteen. That Springsteen reminded guys like Joey Ramone of the music they loved by people like Phil Spector. So I just wanted to say that for all the problems you might have with Bruce Springsteen, don't bring the fact that the Ramones wouldn't like him into the picture. Thanks a lot, guys, for doing a really good show.
more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.